Well, good morning. Greetings from the Cedar Lake campus, not that far from here. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Now, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. We're taking a short break from Romans. So look with me at Genesis chapter 11. Find that first book of the Bible. Turn all the way back to the beginning. Find the big number 11. We're going to be verses 1 through 9 in a second. Now, I, I vowed early on in my marriage that I was never going to own a minivan. <laughs> Some of you are laughing and amening because you've made a similar commitment. For those of you that this is the case, I say, good luck. Right? I held strong for a while. I really did. I, when I first married my wife, I had this uh, coupe. It was a low to the ground, low profile tires, fun thing to drive. Something about being eight months pregnant that she did not like about getting on the ground to drive in that car. So we went and got a Jeep Cherokee, which I love Jeep Cherokees. Okay, I love them. That was great. Until we had three kids and you couldn't fit three car seats or booster seats in that vehicle. So we realized we needed a new car. So I looked around and I found a station wagon. A station wagon isn't that cool, but it's not a minivan. So I got a station wagon. And the kids got older, they got bigger, they wanted to have friends with them. So I drove, I think, hundreds of miles to a junkyard to find a rear-facing seat that I installed in the back of the station wagon, still avoiding the minivan bullet. And then God tricked me into getting a minivan. We needed a new car, a different car. And there was a missionary family who was getting ready to go on the field. And I heard that they wanted to try to get rid of their minivan because they weren't going to be coming back. And it was a really, really affordable price. I was helping the missionaries out. And I felt I had to do it. It was God's will. It was what God wanted for me. And by the way, when they sold me the car, they said, we have prayed over this vehicle every day for the last like three years. It's, I don't, we don't know why it's still running but every day we pray over it. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I have to pray over it every day now. It only lasted for a couple years and it died. So I guess my prayer life isn't as good as theirs. <laughs> so right about that time, I needed another vehicle. And somebody else from the church came up and said, I have a minivan that I think would be good for you. And I was like, okay, Lord, this is what you want. I bought that minivan. Recently, my wife and I talked and we said we need an updated vehicle. And so I thought, here's my chance. My kids are getting older. Here's my opportunity to get the car of my dreams that's also practical for the family. I kind of realized that was probably not going to happen. Okay? <laughs> I started to look at all the crossovers and really like, study everything about them, know all that there is to know. And the day came for my wife and I to go test drive a few. And that's the day that my dreams died. <laughs> because I realized that we were going to get another minivan. <laughs> and that's okay. And you're saying... Mark, it's a car. Get over it. You're right. And we Americans can be very petty, can't we? What happens when something else happens in your life where your plans are just dashed? They're changed. Uh, maybe a young adult who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had found their soulmate, only to have that soulmate dump them. Or maybe a couple who dreams of a bustling family and yet God has not given them children yet. Or a family who God has given children and then they start to walk away from the Lord. But what do you do in these situations when God rearranges your plans, when he ruins your plans? 
And how we pursue our goals and dreams is critical. It's so important. And just as important is how we react when our dreams are dashed. How do we react? And at the heart of it really is this battle of what I want to do, what Mark wants to do, and what God wants to do with my life. It's the age-old struggle of autonomy. I want my way, and God wants his way. And it's a struggle that all of us feel inside of us because it's as old as time. We see it in Genesis chapter 11. You know, people are people. We haven't really changed much. If you look at Genesis 11 with me, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9, let's look at this struggle for autonomy. God's word says, follow along as I read, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Before we dig in here and we really get into what this passage is saying to us, I want to pause for a moment and I want you to see some real beauty in this passage. There's a lot of scripture that is designed in a way that has symmetry and that is beautiful. And here Genesis 11, 1 through 9 is actually a symmetrical, what they call a chiasm. And you're going to see it on the screen here. And, and I get excited about this stuff, so if you just permit me to geek out for a moment, okay? And just look at how God arranged his word. A chiasm is something that inverts. So as it goes, it ends up reverting. So if you look at A and A here, verse 1 and verse 9, similar language. If you look at the Bs, similar language, C, D, all the way to the middle. And in the chiasm, when you get to the middle, it's usually the turning point. It's usually when everything changes. And so as you can see, the Lord came down and everything changes. There's also some word plays in here. There's some literary devices. And it's just a beautiful book. The book this book, the scriptures, is a beautiful book. And I, I tell you that because this is a diamond that you could turn throughout your life and see different facets of it till the day you die. I've read this passage how many times that I didn't know there was this beautiful symmetry in it. But it's not just beautiful. We see ourselves in Genesis chapter 11. First this morning, we like our plans better than God's. We like our plans better than God's. Now perhaps you've read this before and you've wondered, what is the big deal with building a tower? Is God a God that's against architecture? Like, why is he upset with them? And to a degree, this story offends our American sensibilities and our, our entrepreneurial spirit. Why is God doing this? Why is he crushing these dreams? Well, to understand the gravity of this autonomy, we have to go 
back to the beginning. And we have to look at this scripture in its context. So if we zoom out a little bit and we go just a little bit earlier, Genesis 1, the very beginning, you remember what happened. In Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. Did you notice those echoes in our text this morning? Let us. There's not many divine plurals in the Bible, and here are two of them. Let us make man in our own image, and then God says, let us go down and confound the languages. So we know that God wants us to remember creation here. The same powerful triune God who took all the chaos and he brought it into order, now takes order and he puts it into chaos in the Tower of Babel. The same God who created life and put language on the lips now takes language and rearranges it and confuses it. So the original readers of Genesis 11 would have had flashbacks of creation. After God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them. He commanded them to go throughout the earth, to spread out, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he says. Be my image bearers all around the world into the far corners of creation. Spread out. Go out there. And that's a key for understanding Babel. So keep that in your mind. God says spread out to the far places of the world and, be my, and, and, and represent me. Be my image bearers. So Genesis 1, Genesis 2, everything's humming along. Everything's going pretty well. And then Genesis 3 happens. And you have the serpent who tempts Eve with a temptation to be like God. Much like these people in the Tower of Babel are trying to reach the heavens. They want to be like God. And the result in both the garden and Babel is expulsion. Expelled from the garden and now expelled from Babel. In both the garden and Babel, man thinks he knows better than God. Man thinks his plans are better than God's plans. God said, spread out and fill the earth and represent me. And man says, we've done that and now we're, we're done doing that. Here's where it stops. I, I don't want to really go any further. In verse 4 of our text, it says they were making a name for themselves. Make a name for ourselves. But if you read one chapter later, Genesis chapter 12, we see God saying to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great name. I'm going to make a great name of you and your children and your grandchildren. And so God is going to do this. Mankind is jumping the gun here, trying to make a name for themselves when God is the one who makes a name for us. Here's the point. Sometimes what seems to be spirited ambition is in reality stubborn rebellion. Sometimes what we think is just our drive and our, our dreams and our passion to do something in reality under the surface is a stubborn rebellion against what we know deep down God wants us to do. I want you to think about that. And I especially want you to think about that if you're a young person, if you're a teen, a young adult, your whole life ahead of you. You have dreams, you have plans of what you'd like to do and, and even maybe what you think God wants you to do. But have you stopped to think, is this plan that I'm making going to glorify God or glorify me? Is this plan what God wants or is it just what I want? And no matter what our age, we all have dreams, we all have endeavors, and we need to do this. We need to stop and we need to say, and we need to pray, God, would you show me if you want me to do something different? Would you make this plan succeed if it's your will and would you 
Hate to pray it, God, but make it fail if it's not your will. A couple of reasons why we like our plans better than God's plans. Number one, we like comfort. And you won't see this on the screen, but you can jot these down. First, we like comfort. Don't we like to be comfortable? We do. And God is calling these descendants of Noah to spread throughout the whole world, and that is uncomfortable. Going places that you're not familiar with are uncomfortable. In verse Two of our texts, these people had already migrated from the east. They're done with discomfort. I can identify a little bit with them because I recently migrated from the east myself. And when you go into a new area, it's different and, and, and people are a little different and, and everything you see is, is uncomfortable at first. And so these individuals say, enough, we have spread out far enough. This is where we're going to plant our flag. This is where we're going to build a city. But we love what we like and what we're comfortable with. We like convenience. Anyone like convenience? Raise your hand if you like convenience, and most of you do. A couple of you are old school. You're like, no. Okay. Most of us like convenience. I personally like to live nearby a big city. I like to be in, in suburbia, convenience. I can go to, you know, three Walmarts in eight minutes. That, that, that's, that's the kind of place I like to live in. Now, living in Cedar Lake, I feel like I am on the very edge of Chicagoland. Like the very edge. Uh, you go down 41, you got, you, know, you got Hammond and Highland and Griffith, and you have Shearville and St. John, and you get to Cedar Lake. And when you drive by the Cedar Lake campus, it looks just like what I always imagined Indiana was. Okay? Fields. Beautiful fields. But I like comfort. I like convenience, and I often think, what would I have done if God would have called me to the very middle of Indiana, the heartland of Indiana, or he would have said, you know, you're going to keep going further, deeper into the Midwest, Nebraska, or something like that. Like, would I have obeyed? I mean, it's easy to hear God's call when it's somewhere that you want to go. Would I have obeyed? So comfort is one reason we like our plans better than God's. Another reason is conceit conceit. God's way requires selflessness and the residents of Babel, they're too concerned about their own glory. They're trying to make a name for themselves. When it's all about making a name for God and his glory and going throughout the earth and telling people about him. The reason that you and I like our plans better than God's is because if we're brutally honest, we sometimes like ourselves better than we like God. I like me more than I like God, and that's a harsh thing to say, and I know that, but I'm speaking to myself too. We like ourselves more than we like God. Is there any area of your life right now where you're planning and you're striving and you're dreaming, but God is telling you this morning, I need to stop and I need just to ask God if this is his will. Is this what you want, God? Is this relationship that I'm in what you want? This house that I'm getting ready to buy what you want? Is this job that I'm thinking about taking, is this what you want? And just laying it out before him. Is this God for my glory or your glory? And that's a sobering question to ask. And it's a dangerous question to ask, but you and I need to ask it. God, is this about me or is this about you? Now those that are building this Tower of Babel, I do want to note that they are fulfilling one aspect of the creation mandate. God told them to go and to subdue the earth and, and to have dominion over the earth. And so city building and, and, and tower building and all of that is part of that. They are 
doing that, but they are doing it with a motive, notice from the text, to intentionally avoid being dispersed. Lest we be dispersed over all the earth. So their motive is actually to do the opposite of what God has already told them to do. And you know, maybe at this point it's family folklore. They, they remember a long time ago God said something about spreading throughout the whole earth. But they know deep down they should be doing it. And they say, no, this is far enough. This is where we want to live. And so they systematically build a grand tower. Everything's coming together. It's beautiful. I imagine if we would have stood next to it, it would have been impressive and grandiose, like you would, like standing next to Willis Tower on Jackson Avenue or something, where or Jackson Boulevard, whatever it is, and you're looking up at it and it's impressive. This is an impressive endeavor. But then in verse 5, we have the divine building inspection. The divine building inspection. I asked this first service are there any building inspectors in here this morning? It's hard for me to see, but I. I don't see any, I don't know if anyone would admit it if they were. Because does anyone like building inspectors? Right, they're going to come and they're going to evaluate the work that you did or your company did or, or, or whatever. And you're nervous, you're like, they're going to find something wrong with it. Can you imagine if a, if a building inspector not only was judging the quality of your work, but the motives in your heart while you were building it? What are you going to do with that building? And, and he knew that and he was judging it based on your motives and on your heart. Well, that's the divine building inspector we have here in verse 5. He looks at it and he condemns it. Did you notice in the text it says that he came down to see? He came down to see. Now, sometimes people think, well, maybe God has a limited view. Maybe he has a vantage point where he can't see all the stuff that's happening on earth. Well, that is certainly not the case because the scripture says again and again that his eyes are everywhere throughout the earth and he sees the hearts of man. But what the author is doing here is he's using poetic, illustrative language. And actually, he's using the literary brush of sarcasm. God is saying here, you know you're trying to build this grand tower and reach the heavens, and you just want to get all the way up to the heavens. Well, I want to let you know from heaven, I can't even see it. I have to come down to see this work that you have built, this grand work. God had to condescend which sounds a lot like what we've been learning in Romans too, right? All of man's attempts to reach heaven are futile. To try to impress God, they're futile. God had to condescend. God had to come to us in the gospel. But that's what we're studying in Romans. This is Genesis. Gordon Wenham says this, a brilliant and dramatic way of expressing the puniness of man's greatest achievements when set alongside the creator's omnipotence. It's God saying, human beings... Compared to me, your efforts are puny. But although that they're puny and although compared to God they're small, they still have the potential for incredible damage. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, God says, This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Here's another lesson from Babel. If our plans succeed, we will destroy ourselves. If, if we get what we want, as opposed to what God wants, we will destroy ourselves. The more we resist God's way, and the stronger we become, and the longer that we go in that, the more damage we're going to do. And God knows that. 
God sees Babel and he knows where it's going. It's like deja vu all over again for him. Right? Before the flood, remember humanity. Yes, God created humanity perfect. But then Genesis 3, sin shattered that. And man becomes more and more sinful and spreads out throughout the earth and is more and more wicked and God has to do a hard reset and start again. But then after the flood, when God makes this promise, he says, never again will I destroy the whole earth. Never again. And to prove it, he gave us a sign and he painted in the sky a rainbow. Promising that I will stay true to my covenant. I will never again wipe out humanity. So the rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant protection. That he's never going to destroy humanity. And the Tower of Babel is a real life example of him doing that very thing. Saying if if you continue to build and invent and get more and more powerful without honoring me, you will destroy yourselves. So I step in and I change your plans. I step in. And I ruin your plans. Now when you and I read the Old Testament, there is a danger of reading texts like the Tower of Babel or the Flood and saying, man, this God is harsh in the Old Testament. He seems so harsh. But he's not harsh. He's just and he's loving and he knows what he is doing. Maybe somebody in here, you've not trusted in Christ yet. You're not a Christian yet. And one of the reasons you're not is because you look at God in the Bible and you say, I I don't know if I can worship that kind of God. The kind of God that sends a flood? The kind of God that just wrecks our plans? What kind of God is that? Well, you got to see the heart of God. You have to see his merciful hand. You have to know what he's doing here. God knows that the best thing for us is for us to obey him, to do what he's told us to do. God knows that the best thing for us is for his glory to spread throughout all of creation to every nook and cranny of the globe. The worst thing for us is for us to fixate on ourselves and just do what I want to do. And when we do what we want to do without thought for what God wants us to do, we destroy ourselves. And God knows that. That's what's happening here. The bigger God is in our mind and our heart and our neighborhood and our world, the better off we are as human beings. So praise God that if we are his people, if you're a son or a daughter of God, he's not going to allow you to neurotically obsess about yourselves. He's not going to allow you to just continue on day after day, day after day doing your own thing without him stepping in and saying, enough, I'm going to rearrange your plans, I'm going to wreck them if I need to. And in that moment... In the midst of anger and confusion, you have to remember that God sometimes lets it crash and burn so that Jesus is more precious to us. So so that we have nothing and we realize Jesus is all I need, Jesus is all I have right now. And that's what God's doing. Some of you have been there. You've been there recently. Maybe you're there right now. But your plans were wrecked. And I want you to understand God's heart is a, he's a God who loves you too much to let you go on your own way. God loves us enough to ruin our plans. Praise the Lord, God loves us enough to ruin our plans. Here's a question for you to ponder. You don't need to answer out loud or raise your hand, but but just consider this for a moment. If you and I choose to go our own way and, and, and follow our own plans instead of God's plans, what's the worst thing that can happen? The very worst thing that can happen. Just ponder that for a moment. I would submit to you that the worst thing that can happen is success. 
The worst thing that can happen is for you to continue to accomplish your plans, to be more and more successful. Failure would be a whole better, a much better option at that point. Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had it all, or so we thought. That was the title of a news article this past week. And I read the first couple lines and it says this, having everything means nothing. Having every success you ever dreamed of means nothing. Having great wealth, fame, and the freedom to do what the rest of the world only dreams about means nothing. And that was written from a secular author. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to you, it can happen to me, is failure. When it comes from the merciful hand of God, when God steps in, says, no, no, that's not what you're going to do. Because here's what's happening is God is doing something different than we can see. We can't see what he's doing. We don't know why he made our plans fail, but we know he's doing something. Because Philippians 1.6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, so we know that God will never allow his children to get to a point where they're unsalvageable. He's never going to let us get to a point where he cannot do the plans he has for us, that he cannot work in us what he's working in us. Even if we disregard him for a time, even if we selfishly go our own way, he's going to mercifully come in and he's going to change things. God in his power and wisdom decides to halt the building project here at Babel. And notice how he does it. How does he do it? He, he instantly changes all their languages and they all have different Languages. If you're in the trade, this would be very difficult, right? If, you, if you're trying to build something and no one can communicate, very difficult. Now, the Tower of Babel is one of my youngest daughter Presley's favorite stories from the Jesus Storybook Bible, all right? You want me to read a couple lines for you? You're like, yes, let's break this sermon up, all right? It's fine here. All right, she loves this. Whenever we get to this, she just cracks up, and, and so I want to read it. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. And suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It says here it wasn't funny. I'm not saying that. It is funny. But it says, it wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose. Because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say pardon to check if you'd heard right because no one understood that word either. So we have this confusion, this utter confusion. And all of a sudden, Project Skyscraper is off. Because they have far more important things to worry about. Like, who speaks my language? And I try to imagine it in my mind's eye. All these groups of people trying to figure out who, who am I with and who speaks my language. It sounds to me like the worst icebreaker ever. Hey, who are my people? And everyone's finding that out. But by God's hand, they exit Babel and they do the very thing they were so afraid of, the very thing they refused to do, be dispersed throughout the whole earth. They, they do it. God causes them to do it. And while we might fight God's plan for a while, ultimately God's plan will be done. Ultimately God's plan will be done. If God wants you to drive a minivan, you're going to drive a minivan. Sometimes now when I drive down the road, I have to smile in my heart like, okay, God, this is my life and I'm okay with that. And it's kind of nice. I find it amusing that these people have been working so hard on this tower. I mean, all the effort and the money and the time. 
And then with one word, God just undoes it. He just says, enough. It's done. God's plan will be done, which is why it's important for you and it's important for me to just surrender our plans to him in the first place and say, God, it's yours. So I surrender my will to you. Because you could spend years building your own empire only to have it crash and burn. And think about anything. I mean, you could fill in the blank. If you have a career and you're advancing through different positions in that career, and you walk in one day and they say, we're downsizing. It happens all the time. Or you have a home that you built and you love and all of a sudden a fire destroys that. Or you spend your life making sure you're very health, healthy, very fit, only to have a debilitating accident. Sometimes children go to heaven before parents. The very best thing that you and I can do is submit all of our dreams and all the people in our family and our cars and our job and everything to God and say, it's yours, God. I give it to you. Even if you take it away, you're still good. I pray that you wouldn't take it away. But God, you have my heart. You have my stuff. You have everything. And this is known in Scripture as submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. Not just the one who saves me from hell, and that is so important for God to save us from our sins and to save us from an eternity apart from God. But also our Lord. The Bible says we need to confess that Jesus is Lord. So that means, God, I I go wherever you want me to go. Indiana, wherever. God, you have my stuff. Whatever you want to do with it, I give it to you. Have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? It's one thing to submit to Jesus' plan when things are going great. And it's another thing when things are not going very well at all. He is Lord. He knows what's best for me. He deserves and, quite frankly, demands for me to submit to his lordship. But remember his tender heart. His tender heart towards us. At the Tower of Babel, it's as if God is saying, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. You've chosen the hard way. I'm guessing that at least a few of you in this room will face something similar to this. Maybe right now you're going through it. But you have planned and you have dreamt and all of a sudden things have come undone. And when you stand there in the midst of all of that, I want to encourage you not to get angry and shake your fist at God. Even though you may be angry and even though you may be struggling with it. But to remember the Tower of Babel and remember that God does what's right. God is working something that we can't see. I would suggest to you this morning, sometimes God allows our dreams to be crushed because those dreams would crush us. He allows our dreams to be crushed because God can look down time and he can see his child. And he can see his child being crushed by sin and by whatever our heart conjures up because of the situation, the the, the possession that we have, the person in our life. All we can see is our broken dreams. All we can see is our crushed hopes. But God sees his child and he knows what would happen to us. And so he steps in and he changes things. I close with this. Uh, When we read the storyline of scripture, I praise the Lord that the rebellion of man is not the end. And I'm talking about the rebellion at the Tower of Babel and all the rebellion in the Old Testament and the rebellion at the cross of Jesus Christ where man shakes their fist at God And crucifies Jesus Christ. But the rebellion of man is not the end. And in the Tower of Babel, the rebellion of man is not the end. Here's what I mean by this. God takes 
Babel, he dismantles it and he takes the very pieces and he builds what he wants to build. That's what he does if we look at the scriptures, if we look at the text. It's like man is saying, look what we can do. Look what we can build. And God says, okay, well, you want to see what I can build? You want to see what I'm going to do? Because think about this for a moment. The beauty of culture, languages, ethnicities. God, he, he rearranges these plans. He dismantles this building project and he takes those very pieces like various languages. He spreads people out throughout the world. And now we have the beauty of culture. Vanuatu, our missionaries here this morning. All over the world, people of different ethnicities, there's beauty in every single culture. And all of that because God decides to ruin the plan of Babel. Or the doctrine of election, you know, when God calls Abraham. He has to make multiple nations before he can call one nation, before he can call Abraham out from the nations. All of that is beautiful because of what happened here at the Tower of Babel. And if you fast forward a couple thousand years to a very great reversal at Pentecost, Acts 2, where all these people with different languages, they hear in one language. They hear the gospel miraculously. See, that's a reversal of Babel. All these people coming together, hearing the gospel, loving Jesus, and coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior, that's the beautiful reversal that God is doing. That's what God is building that mankind couldn't see at the time. And it's all a little foretaste of that beautiful future that we all will enjoy in Revelation chapter 7. When John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you imagine that? Our brother Tony, who was here this morning from Vanuatu, him and, and, and all cultures together singing this one song. I'm glad man didn't get his plan. I'm glad that mankind didn't win. I'm glad that God reversed it all because that's where we're headed. But we're not there yet. And we got a little bit of time before that. I don't know how much. So I want to leave you with this picture uh, on the screen you'll see from the Philadelphia Magic Gardens. Anyone ever been to the Philadelphia Magic Gardens off of South Street in Philly? Anyone? Oh wow, okay. At least one. It's pretty unique. It's a neat little artistic expression. And what this artist does is he takes glass and he takes plates and, um, and he makes a mosaic with it. Often he breaks them up into pieces. And then you walk through this pretty amazing maze of bottles and bikes and glass and ceramic and all in this beautiful collage, this beautiful mosaic. This is a great picture to go home with remembering that this is what God does. God breaks us sometimes. Sometimes God shatters our dreams. He does. But we have to know from this text that God is a master artist, that God is doing something that we can't see, and he is building something beautiful. So in those moments where we feel broken, all we can do is cry out to God and say, God, would you make something beautiful with this? I don't see it now. This is a disaster. This is, this is not what I wanted, but I know from your word that you're doing something I can't see. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works.